This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the catch up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo Irarangi o Natangata o Manawatu. It is a Wednesday morning, and that means we turn our attention to the media. Um, and we have on the phone this morning, not in the studio, RNZ regional reporter Jimmy Ellingham. Good morning to you. Good morning, Fraser. Yes, yeah, you're down in Wellington. I am, uh, hence joining by the phone. I'm, uh, I'm down here just uh, helping out really with RNZ's uh, general news coverage, but it's been a busy few weeks down here, so reporters have been putting in lots of hours with various things, including, of course, the protest at uh, Parliament. Or as I call it, the illegal occupation. Mm, protest, occupation, uh, whatever you might call it. So uh, and we should probably tell people we're re- recording this on Tuesday. So yes. if something happens overnight, uh, we uh, we don't know about it yet. But uh, I had a look around yesterday. There didn't seem to be a huge number of people there. It seems perhaps that people come at the weekend and then go back to work, presumably, uh, during the week. But there's many, many tents on the, on the grounds of Parliament. And it's quite an interesting sight seeing the streets surrounding uh, blocked off. You can you can walk down the middle of some of those streets that are normally pretty busy during the day. Yeah, and uh, so so the, the tents. Do we think they're largely empty then? It's difficult to know. There's definitely people in some of them, but certainly many of them do seem to be empty. As uh, as one reporter put it, it looked like uh, the aftermath of a you know a rock concert in a, in a field. You know where people leave leave their tents, but potentially. Of course, they're returning to them at the weekends or other people are going there. Um, it's very hard to know, but there didn't seem to be that many people about yesterday. Not to say there were, there were none, of course. It was still a reasonably busy site, but compared with the video I've seen in the previous weeks to what I saw yesterday, there were fewer people. Well, then we'll leave them to it and see uh, what happens in the coming days. It's quite interesting, though. It's like the equivalent of reserving a sun lounger with a beach towel. You you keep you, you keep your space in the protest with the tent. Um, yes, you, you keep your space in the parliamentary lawn or garden <laughs> where you've pitched it. <laughs> um, speaking of Parliament, though, um, Palmerston North has been making not you know um, huge headlines in the national press, but certainly uh, we are getting mentioned in Parliament because the Reserves and Recreations Act or something to that extent. Basically, um, Huia Street Reserve in Palmerston North is designated as a reserve, uh, can only be used for recreational purposes, uh, and the Parliament is looking to change that with a view to putting housing on it. But um, a a large, uh, well, certainly a vocal uh, part of the population are objecting to the idea of putting housing there. Indeed. Tomorrow, the Environment Select Committee will hear submissions on, uh, I have to get this right, the Palmerston North Reserve's Empowering Amendment Bill. Yeah, that's uh, what I said. A bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what you said. And that, of course, means that the council will give, give um, council uh, sucker to what it wants to do there, which is build housing. And it has to go through Parliament to change the law, which is unusual, but that's just sort of an historical anomaly in a way, because that land was gifted to Palmerston North as a reserve. 22 submissions were received by the select committee, of which uh, I looked at them, only five you could say of four 
changing the designation there. And I would say that well, at least 15, maybe 16, some of them were a bit on the fence, uh, were against the move to change the designation. But we had uh, various people make various points of view. One man called Simon Loveday said that uh, he's upset that a vocal minority he calls it as halting progress. That's always difficult, isn't it? Because it's easy to say when you do consultation, if you don't get the result you like from submissions, that it's a vocal minority. But if you get the result you want, then of course it's a democratic process, isn't it? Yeah, well, I did say that sort of impassioned uh, argument. The vast majority of people, uh, it looks like, just don't care. Well, given that there was only 22 submissions out of a population of 90,000, yes, you could definitely make uh, that (laughs) argument uh, as well. Uh, Various other people said, you know, do not give away more of our green space. You're taking it from future uh, generations. And one person, Christopher Sibley, wrote that down the years he'd seen plenty of green space going. He didn't want this one uh, to follow. Uh, He said sort of at what cost would happen? Uh, Would this happen? It would be rows and rows of two-storey or multi-storey housing with kids playing in the street, he said. Uh, one submission from Karen Adams uh, supported housing but said it shouldn't be up to the council to do so. Uh, there was one submission from a Judith um, Gatch, I think is how you say her surname. Uh, she lives on Park Road, and I'll read you her entire submission if I could, Fraser. It was very succinct. <laughs> it said, I live on Park Road. It's hard enough in the morning and the afternoon to get in and out. More housing would be just stupid. Leave it as it is. Well, I mean, that's, some of that is valid, but leaving it as it is, I mean, it's just a bit of a waste ground at the moment. It is not a reserve. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's an old bowling club that's overgrown. Indeed, even people who want it used as recreational purposes, I don't think, want it left as it is. Of course, it has been tidied up in the past couple of months. Well, yeah, I mean, it was. Now, it, now it looks like an overgrown old derelict bowling club, whereas before it looked like a jungle. Yes, yes, and that was after well, more than a decade, perhaps 15 years. And, and indeed, 15 years ago, the council did try to get uh, this law changed in, in Parliament, uh, but that collapsed because there was a lack of unity among submitters, and the uh, select committee sort of said the council needs to go away and sort out its own position. But tomorrow, we have the Environment Committee hearing submissions. Then after that, the bill's already gone through its first reading in Parliament, and uh, after the Environment Committee reports back, it will have a second reading, uh, sometime relatively soon, you would think. So, I mean, what what, what do we expect the Environment uh, Committee to say? If you were a betting man, will, will they sign off on this for the second reading or will there be some legitimate concerns? I think they'll sign off, but they will say something along the lines of we acknowledge the concerns. You know, we hear you, as yes. people say. <laughs> we hear you, but we're not going to do anything about it. Um, the, we, a, a new word for the, for the day, let's all add to our vocabulary, a Pyrolysis plant uh, in Palmerston North. Yes, I'm glad you've said that. It's actually just near Fielding on Kawakawa Road, but it's proposed uh, anyway. And the idea is there's this company called Bioplant Manawatu, which is part of a wider company that also wants to build similar plants in Gisborne and Hokitika. And the idea is it burns the civic waste and turns it into energy. (laughs) So that's uh, a new process that we're not uh, familiar with in New Zealand, but I think there are some examples of it overseas. However, some people in fielding are against this, saying we just don't really know, we don't have enough information to make an informed view. And there's a group called Fielding Against Incarceration, which a couple of weeks ago had a small picket outside Horizons Regional Council. And the reason the group was there is because it wanted the resource consent, which this bioplant factory has made, to discharge into the air, to have a public hearing as opposed to be uh, something that Horizons just decides on the paper. 
And uh, earlier this week, Horizons came out and said, yes, indeed, we will make this uh, a public process so people can have can make submissions and information about this pyrolysis. I'm only going to say it once, plant goes up on the Horizons website tomorrow. And Fielding Against Incarceration welcomed uh, welcome this, as you would expect. And with these processes under the Resource Management Act, once uh, a submission is made, if, the, if that submission wants to be heard, then there will be a public hearing, uh, which will give people more information, of course, about the whole process. And the final decision will be made either by a commissioner or a panel of commissioners. That's not entirely uh, been decided yet, but we should find that out tomorrow. This group fielding against incarceration has also been calling for a public meeting to be heard because uh, it says that in fielding perhaps people don't know uh, what's proposed out there. But uh, due to restrictions that we're all living with at the moment, instead it's going to have an online meeting uh, next Thursday night, so Thursday next week. So have we heard from the company? Do we know if this pyrolysis is a a better process than, you know, um, incineration or, or anything like that? I attempted to contact the company. I haven't had any luck. Uh, the head office is in Australia. Uh, but but yeah, some people looking looking online at, uh, at what people have been saying overseas about it, some people say, yes, there's benefits. Others are a bit more concerned. There's a couple of messy university professors, including one I spoke to, uh, Robert McLaughlin, who is concerned at least that the green credentials that this company uh, you know, promotes might not be able to be lived up to. Um, as an aside, does, does Fielding have a lot of incarceration that it needs to object to? Okay, maybe I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> Did I say incarceration, not incineration? Uh, yeah, no, you said incarceration. I, I sincerely thought you meant incarceration, but it's incineration, is it? <laughs> it's incineration. No, oh. My apologies there. <laughs> oh, that's much better. Okay, I can strike that. I, can, I, I, I did wonder if that was uh, a necessary group in little old Fielding. Well, maybe there is a fielding against incarceration group, but if there is, I don't think it's against this pyrolysis plant. Right, fair enough. Oh, thank you for that. Um, we are here with Jimmy Ellingham from uh, RNZ, regional Manawatu regional reporter, uh, joining us uh, from Wellington at the moment because uh, the times they are are changing, and he's needed down in the in the big smoke. Uh, ah, big smoke incineration. Get it? Um, you are listening to NPR. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch Up, just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up um jimmy you've um been dra- shannon has drawn your attention uh, some rather hefty roadworks there yeah well actually the roadworks are near levin it's the uh, the if you're heading north towards palmerston north from wellington uh most of us would probably not go through levin unless you want to stop there you'd turn off right near the old kimberley uh, centre, but of course you can't do that at the moment because there's some safety improvements being made to that section of State Highway 57, and that's having a huge effect on Shannon businesses. You can, of course, still get to State Highway 57 through Shannon. You can go down, say, Queen Street and Levin or various other local roads, but uh, for motorists who aren't from round here and who might not know that, they're actually being directed to head north through Foxton Himatangi Way, uh, which is costing Shannon businesses big time. I, I went there last week and spoke to a few of them, and they're reporting drops in trade of up to 90%. Uh, and one of those businesses there is the Horseman's Cafe, and owner Alan Windle had this to say when I asked him what effect the closure's having on his business. A huge um, effect. I mean, it's our high season. We're bad enough without any tourists. 
but now with the road closed and, com- and COVID compacting on top of it, it's absolutely, we're about 70% down to what we normally are this time of year, and this is the time of year when we do our good turnover to tide us through winter. Being 70% down, have you had to, has there been any consequences on your business value? Have you had to let people go, that sort of thing? We have had to um, go on a different tangent. We've had to cut the staff hours, but to enable them to keep their jobs, we as the owners are going in now two nights a week to do takeaways to help um, keep our staff employed. Yeah. So in 16 years you've never seen anything like this? <laughs> Absolutely not. This is just, um, it's just rock bottom for us really. Um, and at this stage we can't see how we can climb out without um, improvising and trying to keep us going. It is quite interesting, Jimmy, that it's just, you know, one thing after another after another. You know, if it was just the roadworks, that might be one thing, but it's the roadworks and COVID and everything else. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not just the roadworks, but I guess it's come at the worst time for them, particularly, as Alan Wendell says, it's supposed to be the busiest time for the cafe. And that's what other businesses were saying, too. There's a shop called Shenanigans, which is a co-op where people sell their various you know, books, arts, that sort of thing. And uh, people there say that some days they've had no customers and that they reckon their trade's down 90%. The old plumbed up gift shop, uh, the owner there, says that she's relisted her hours as 10.30 until whenever because on some days it's simply not worth uh, staying open. There's no customers around. Uh, Streetwise Coffee as well, 70% of its business in the morning was from traffic heading north and, of course, that traffic's not there. But also at the weekend you're not getting, apparently, the holiday or the, the, you know, the vacationing motorists driving through. Once again, that could be partly because people are travelling less due to COVID restrictions. But uh, New Zealand Transport Agency, Waka Kotahi, Linda Stewart, the local person who, of course, we remember from uh, the Central Economic Development Agency, says that uh, perhaps the roading uh, authority has learned some lessons about consultation. It was only made clear, these businesses say, that the road would be at least one lane would be closed just before Christmas, so they didn't really get a chance to prepare or object. Um, and NZ Transport Agency, too, has spoken about the possibility of some sort of marketing campaign or advertising or even promotional campaign so people know that uh, the town is there. One thing that it cannot do is direct traffic down the local roads. It can only direct traffic on state highways, so that's why it's forced to say, no, go north through Foxton. And the Honofanua District Council, which presumably could put up some sort of sign or something like that, um, says it has no plans to, perhaps not wanting extra traffic down local roads, not used to it. Yeah, it's a bit of a rock and a hard place, but also it's a bit of a ludicrous legislative uh, limitation on um, Waka Kutahi not to put signs up saying, go that way. Yes, yep, because it's not it's not, not, there, not its uh, road, so it cannot do that. It, it does all seem a little bit silly. The other thing that seems perhaps a little bit absurd is, yes, there are these plans potentially to put some sort of advertising or promotional uh, advertising campaign together, but it's only being done now, whereas this road closure started in early January and the roadworks are expected to go till mid-year. Uh, Waka Kotahi, too, says that perhaps might have a look at the closing stages of those roadworks in an effort to try to get traffic travelling two ways a bit earlier than imagined on State Highway 57. So it's doing a few things in mitigation, but it's just those things are being done now, not before January. Uh, moving on, uh, we've uh, talked um, quite comprehensively, I think, over the past couple of catch-ups around uh, the Lake Alice uh, inquiries as part of the larger um, 
inquiry into uh, abuse in state care. Um, quite interesting. Rang- the Rangatiki mayor has apologised to victims of Lake Alice. Um, it, it seems a, a peculiar thing to weigh in on. Yeah, on Saturday, Andy Watson, the Rangatiki district mayor, turned up at a blessing, which was at the Lake Alice site. It was actually outside the Lake Alice site because Lake Alice, uh, of course, it closed in 1999 near Martin, and it's now under private ownership, and the landowner didn't give permission uh, for former patients and survivors of Lake Alice to come and, and do this blessing. But Andy Watson did turn up, and he said he gave an unreserved apology to the people there. He said there were certainly times when the community could have and should have known what was going on there. We weren't particularly welcoming as a community. A huge number of people from Martin worked out at Lake Alice. It was a principal employer of the day, he said. There must have been a sense that all wasn't well. So he's apologised there and also said that uh, if, if survivors or former patients want some sort of memorial, in, in Andy Watson's words, his doors are open. He's keen to at least start talking about that. Oh, that makes a bit more sense than just a random mayor apologising. There does seem to be a, a basis for that. Yeah, yeah, very much, uh, very much so. I mean, Andy Watson said he himself, uh, being, a, being a local man, he, he knew of Lake Alice, but perhaps didn't know anything about it. And ignorance, be it uh, willful or otherwise, is, I think, behind his apology. Do you think there'll be a call for a memorial? I would have thought most people would want to just sort of draw a, a curtain over that experience once the inquiry is done. But, you know, what do I know? Yeah, some, some of the survivors do want a memorial. I mean, some, some perhaps don't, and some didn't go to this blessing on Saturday because, like you say, they just don't want to go back there. Uh, but uh, Paul Zentfeld, who's one we have heard from on this show, he was the man who took a case to the UN uh, Committee on Torture, uh, and that, of course, ruled that Lake Alice should be investigated properly, which led, I suppose, to the Royal Commission into the Lake Alice Child and Adolescent Units in the 1970s, and even the third police investigation into what went on last year. So Paul Zentfeld has been working really for decades uh, to advocate for former patients of Lake Alice such as himself and is now getting some traction. And he really does want a memorial, a place for people to go to, to remember what they went through or what their family members went through or what their friends went through. We are here with Jimmy Ellingham, Manawatu Regional Reporter for RNZ. If you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch-Up series, head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch-up. Also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your online listening. Um, another uh, area that you've been focused on in the past few weeks, Jimmy, is uh, our healthcare system in Palmerston North and Manawatu. Uh, you've had a, a focus on mental health, but we've talked about the emergency department as well as a sort of symbol of, of how stressed our health system is at the moment. I understand that, I think you gave, gave a, a statistic that the, the target for the emergency department was to see something like 90% of people within the first six hours or something to that effect. And uh, the, it appears that um, an elderly woman, I believe, just missed out on that target with a 24 our wait in the uh, ED department in Palmerston North. That's right. On both counts, Fraser, that is the target to see 90% of patients at the Palmerston North Emergency Department within six hours, which might sound a long time, but uh, we've been told of patients who regularly wait longer than that, including an 84-year-old woman in early February who went in on late Thursday night, sort of you know, about 11pm midnight-ish on a Thursday with uh, chest pains, breathing difficulties and I mean what she was seen but she wasn't properly seen not moved to a ward for almost 24 hours it was 11 p.m. on the Friday night 
this 84-year-old woman finally got moved to a ward. Tanya Potu, who was a, Potu, who was a, a relative uh, of the woman, was there with her for much of that time, and she said that the emergency department was just stretched, the staff were busy. She, she felt sorry for the staff, who she said were doing their, their best, but given the circumstances, there's not a lot they could do. And, uh, for example, she spoke about seeing an elderly patient who came out of her cubicle uh, was trying to yell for help, but no one heard her, and she just wanted someone to help take her to the toilet because the staff were simply too busy uh, to even notice that sort of thing. The emergency department, we know it's outdated. Even uh, the, the chief executive of the Mid-Central District Health Board has said we need a new one. It was built for about 17,000 17, people a year. At the moment, it's getting three times that. So wow. 50,000 patients a year. Mid-Central and the people drive down Ruahine Street We'll see that there's some construction works happening there, and there will be some improvements. And Mid Central says some streamlining of people who are going to the emergency department, but still, without a completely new ward, it won't perhaps make huge amount of uh, a difference, or at least the sort of difference that people might expect. You know, to see a target of seeing people in a lot fewer than six hours. Um, I spoke to Christina Emerson, who's a nurse at the emergency department, and she's the Nursing uh, New Zealand Nurses Organisation uh, Union rep for Palmerston North, and I asked her uh, what it's like working there. So most days it's just absolute chaos. We are really busy all of the time. We operate at 90% of our capacity 76% of the time. Compared to other EDs around the country, they operate at 90% of capacity 34% of the time. Where you just see extreme numbers, there's lots of problems for this. It's not just an ED issue. It's primary care people can't get in to see their GPs. And they're waiting weeks and weeks to get in. And they've got problems that they need sorted. And these things kind of need to be addressed to reduce the risk of any long-term complications. So we're not saying for people not to come. But at the moment, we're just overwhelmed. And when we're talking uh, over capacity, what, what sort of numbers are we talking and what would the ideal be? So the department is quite old and was designed to see 17,000 patients a year and at the moment we're currently sitting at about 55,000 patients per year. So we're almost at three times, we're seeing three times the number of patients that we were designed to see. We have 24 resource beds, we have other spaces that get used but they aren't resource spaces so they don't have an allocated nurse, they don't have equipment, they don't have curtains, there might be a chair in a corridor or a bed in a corridor. There's no privacy for patients. I like to apply the grandma test and I think if that was my grandma, would I be happy with the treatment that she's getting? And a lot of the time I can't say yes to that. Well, what, what, did it, <laughs> how did it get this bad, Jimmy? It's obviously happened over years, hasn't it? And uh, Christina also told me that, uh, for example, she did a shift recently where she came in about 7am on a Saturday morning and there were more, more than one, more than two people who had been there since the night before, so waiting 12 12 hours or so and she talked about the risk of course that staff simply burn out because they've got they're too busy and they can't give people the level of care that they that they want to do and uh, that that's leading to people resigning when of course you want to keep staff who know how to work in the emergency department because training them up and getting them up to speed as we've spoken about in other jobs too is not that simple so how did we get here it seems to have just happened uh, down the years it's just got worse and worse and worse but to get to three times capacity i mean surely when they were you know at capacity all of the time that would have been the moment where you go we need to upgrade or do something about this not waiting until three times when i worked at the manoche standard before working at rnz i remember our health reporter there uh, Janine Rankin was frequently doing stories about the stress on the on the emergency department, uh, even you know several several years ago. So it's been known about for some time, and I think it might be as far back as 
might have been 2018 off the top of my head, or 2019, where Catherine Cook, mid-central CEO, says we said we need a new department. So we're just waiting for the money, perhaps, for someone to say, yes, we do need this new emergency department. Of course, Palmerston North Hospital is not alone there, is it? No, no. And I mean, this is one of the criticisms that was uh, laid at the feet of the, the key government was the lack of uh, funding into the, the, the health system. And we hear stories of Middlemore with the mould on the walls and also not fit for purpose. So um, I guess this is just something that the government's going to... Will, will, the, will the, the, the big health reform do anything about this, do you think? Will we see better uh, investment in the future? You'd hope so, isn't that? That's the idea behind the health reforms, isn't it? That, of course, we'll, we'll see later later in the year. Uh, will it do anything straight away? Who knows? But surely, if, if these sort of problems aren't being sorted out, then you'd have to question what the point of the health reforms is. Indeed, a couple of minutes left. Uh, a chance for us to engage in your in your favourite uh, type of story, and that's the sporting story, um, particularly around cricket. We had cricket last time. We caught up, and we have cricket again. Uh, and this is uh, a, a black cap uh, returning to cricket uh, past retirement age. Yes, especially for you, Fraser. I thought I'd do a cricket story. This is Andrew Penn. A former New Zealand fast bowler, he played for New Zealand uh, for five in five One Day Internationals, in, from 1997 to 2001. He retired fairly early from the professional or semi-professional game in about 2003-04, and uh, forged a career as a lawyer in Wellington. But two years ago, his family returned to Whanganui, where he's uh, working at a law firm. And uh, last summer, he began a cricketing comeback as a batsman. And this summer, age 47, he's even been bowling again. Uh, for Whanganui. Bowling um, at 47? I mean, how dare he? He's going to do himself an injury. <laughs> well, it's <laughs> funny you should say that because um, I spoke to Andrew Penn. He was in Palmerston North playing for Whanganui at a Rep 2020 tournament recently. And uh, yeah, he said that uh, his endeavours on the cricket field can, can indeed hurt. Um, so, so, I mean, what is the age of retirement uh, for your average cricket player? Well, it varies, doesn't it? I mean, he, he was a fast bowler, and they perhaps wouldn't play much beyond their mid-30s, certainly at the professional level. Uh, we are seeing now there's lots of 2020 leagues around the world, uh, phrases such as you might have heard of the Indian Premier League, the Big Bash in Australia, so sometimes people are playing on in those uh, till they're a bit older. I mean, Andrew Penn, because he wasn't, I suppose, with all due respect to him, he wasn't at the top of the New Zealand game. He was perhaps a fringe player for the national side. So he may have retired a bit earlier anyway if those 2020 opportunities weren't there for him. But uh, yeah, certainly it's an interesting story. After 50, more than 15 years of really not playing cricket, to come back and not just come back to cricket but actually play at a rep level is pretty impressive. And he said that uh, he's 47, there's another man in the Whanganui team who's about 40 and the rest of them are teenagers or in their early 20s. And he bowled uh, a spell in one game against Hawke's Bay this year. Andrew Penn got four wickets. And they were his first rep wickets for Whanganui since 1995 when, I think it's safe to say, most of the team weren't born. <laughs> yes. Um, but no aspirations of getting another cap for, the, uh, for the, the, the national side? No, no, none of those. And he's also said that he'll step aside from the Whanganui team if, you know, if he was getting in the way of a young player. Uh, but he's going to keep playing club cricket and has plans to, to keep going. He, he actually got involved in the administration of cricket in Whanganui when he moved back there. Uh, but he, he got talked into playing by a colleague at his law firm who said, you know, one of those things, come, just come along to practice and then you end up playing 
potentially, as, as you know, Fraser, from, uh, from football and things, you, you play one game as a fill-in, then all of a sudden you're on the team. Yes, yes. Um, and I, I think that seems to be how it's gone for Andrew Penn. A path of least resistance. Uh, Jimmy Ellingham from uh, RNZ, Manawatu Regional Reporter, thank you for joining us on the catch-up this morning. Thank you, Fraser. And uh, tomorrow we will have Alicia Rutherford, Deputy Mayor of Palmerston North City Council, joining us. And of course, on Friday, it's uh, turning our attention to MPs. We have Ian McKelvey, MP for Rangitiki. Uh, make sure you join us at half past eight. Bye for now. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.